0: Hello and welcome to Everybody Loves Communism, the leftist history and theory podcast where we do the reading so you don't have to. You should still do it, though. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Aaron Thorpe. And when our powers combine, we are Captain Communism. No, we're just 2 jackoffs um, with microphones, but um, yeah. actually we're 3 jackoffs with microphones today. Um, I should introduce our guest. He is a teacher. A researcher and a writer. Um, Those of you who've heard of him, some of you will be very excited about this. Others might be mad, and that's okay. (laughs) It's Jasper Burns. What's up? How you doing, man?
1: Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming on.
0: So uh, first things first, because all right, we've been talking to a lot of different people about what texts they want to come on and discuss with us. And it was your idea, Jasper, to do a critique of the Gotha program. So why did you want to come on and discuss this particular, perhaps obscure text by Marx?
1: Well, in part because I know a lot about it. Uh, but, also, but also because I think there are uh, a lot of interesting conversations happening around it and around some of the ideas found in it right now. Um, there seems to be interest in it and interest in some of the, the, um, things and conversations that is inspired. So, um, it seems actually like a good way to get into, um, questions about, uh, what Marx was trying to do, what communism is, um, how we could go about constructing it. Even at the same time as it's a very, it's a very, uh, weird and elliptical text and not something I would I guess I wouldn't really recommend it uh to people just starting out and looking for some explanation of what communism is because it's also um really just a letter that he wrote to his his comrades in in Germany uh to communicate his position. Uh and so he never intended it to be to be read as as itself a programmatic document or some kind of statement of his views on communism.
0: Well, then, maybe he should have written more programmatic documents
2: jasper can I ask you can I ask you a question because he wrote it towards the end of his life um how, how, what do you think uh, how do you think that was relevant in um the views presented in the text versus his earlier writing like kind of what do you think happened within his own life and more importantly, I guess like uh, the context of what he saw, especially after writing you know the manifesto and having his ideas kind of spread. Um, what do you think, uh, what do you think had changed in his, uh, in his, uh, later years, especially right before he was about to die? That's a, that's a really great question. And in fact, I have a hard time answering that
1: question. I think that, that the late Marx is sort of something of a mystery. Um, and because he was working on these things that he promised to finish and didn't finish, and he was mostly engaged in kinds of tangential pursuits. It's actually really hard to know, uh, how his views evolved during that period. Uh, you know, in some ways, one can say that he's becoming uh, maybe more kind of conservative and more aligned with the kind of uh, parliamentarism of uh, what will eventually become the second international, right? And this is the kind of the beginning of of that moment. Uh, But there are also other indications as well. And I think this is an example of a text where it really shows that he's um, hasn't really lost a lot of what makes him a a truly uncompromising thinker so it's it's hard to say you know uh it's uh i I, i'm not really sure i mean i can i can contextualize this thing this text where he's you know he's um basically the the two existing socialist parties in germany are about to merge and one of them is aligned with marx and the other one is aligned with marx's old comrade ferdinand lasalle um and he's writing this letter to try to kind of ward off the errors of the lasallian program and LaSalle has you know in the in the time since they were involved with working with each other in 1848 he you know he's 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 changed his views and he's become much more of a kind of statist he's been conducting these secret dealings with uh you know with bismarck and kind of imagining that there's this sort of state road to socialism through imperial decree so uh so that's that's the context and marx is definitely trying to to ward that off and then and then the the reason why we read this document is because Engels published it 10 years later after marx was had had died and he published it for his own he was trying to make a point as well uh during the next uh congress for the party and he brought out this document in order to eliminate the last traces of lasallianism as he as he uh, thought it. So, it, you know, it's it's a document that has a sort of complex, very particular history. Like you can imagine, you know, two factions in the DSA or something like that communicating, uh, you know, or, or, or merging or something like that.
0: And like certain factions in the DSA, you have to read between the lines to understand why what they're proposing is bad.
2: I, I did want to add that um, I think that uh, paying attention to kind of the underlying message of like, uh, not just with the Lasallians, but any left liberals or self-described democratic socialists. I think uh, the fact that Marx starts like part one um, with semantics, like just picking apart, like line by line, every point of the platform, uh, you know, you could look at it and see it as nitpicky, but I think it's actually like demystifying, right? I think it's really important that he does that. And I appreciated that like uh, right out of the gate in old like, you know, Marx's fashion as well. Like he's very fiery too. right
0: yeah he says at the end something like uh there we go now my soul is saved or something like yeah. that like he yeah and there's a preface too where he's like i didn't really feel like writing this i'm fucking old but i had to because it's important and then at the end he's right. like Ugh, you know i you kind of get the feeling like this is one of his last efforts to try to set things on the right path before he leaves us
1: right and he had limited hopes for the party that would emerge from this congress he knew that it would take some time for the kind of correct position to to win over uh the 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 lasallian viewpoint and there's an argument to be made that the marxists you know in in that party never really did win over it and in fact um you know gave into it in some respect
0: so in this text Marx talks about how the new society that is to say socialist and communist society uh, has to grow out of the old one capitalist society and that therefore there needs to be some sort of transitional phase between capitalism and communism known by various people and understood by various people as lower stage communism, socialism, state socialism, or a phrase that Marx uses here, a dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, what's your take on this? Do you agree with this? What do you think Marx is saying? Side note, Jasper's a communization guy. So we thought he'd have a really interesting answer. Right.
1: Well, I'm going to be kind of annoying and say that I don't exactly agree with Marx, but I also don't think that people, for the most part, actually grasp what Marx is saying here. Um, but it's also a very um, ambiguous text. And so, you know, I don't think he's he's advocating for something like, you know, state socialism, um, and I think that he's in fact what he calls the lower stage of, of socialism or communism, is in fact far more uh, maximalist than is often uh, than than many readers often recognize, and and that's because he's he's being very. Um, very concise in in the way that he makes his point and he's assuming that his readers kind of already are familiar with a lot of things and so if you don't if you don't know that you can miss some aspects of what he's saying so the one thing i point out that's really really important is that he says um you know when he's getting into the meat of it and talking about the labor certificate which is the thing that people seize on he says uh within the cooperative society based on common ownership of the means of production the producers do not exchange their products uh, just as little does the labor employed on the products appear here is the value of these products. And so when he says the producers do not exchange their products, he means something really specific. And he means that society is already organized according to a plan, right? The, these produce, these, these workers may get a certificate, which they use to um, get the things that they need. And so, so he, uh, it's, it's really important to understand when he, when he says that it's a cooperative society and the producers do not exchange their products. He's imagining that these people working in different sites, they're not exchanging money or labor certificates in order to get the things they need, right? They don't have to, they don't have to purchase um, coal and steel and whatever they need to make the products that they make. It's just given to them according to the plan. Uh, and a lot of people don't get that. Uh, and if you don't get that, you really don't understand, I think, what he's arguing for here and what he's arguing against. Yeah.
0: So, OK, I guess I have two follow up questions to that, um, one of which is, um, is a dictatorship of the proletariat uh, possible without a state? Because I feel like a lot of people would define it as, you know, these special bodies of armed men, as Lenin said, um, sort of enforcing the rule of one class on another, just like the bourgeois state did, but now it's turned upside down and it's the rule of the proletariat until we abolish classes, at which point it won't be necessary. You know what? I think that's one (laughs) follow-up question is good enough for now.
1: Well, I don't think that there's, I don't think there's a lot in this text that would give you that sense of what a dictatorship of the proletariat you know, means uh, for Marx, he's really not, he's really not talking about s- state power um, as he come to see it about the, the sort of the organized violence of the state. Um, he's, he's really interested in a very particular question about kind of uh, distribution of, of social wealth. And he says something really interesting about what the state is um, th- here. And he says that, as long as you have these um, underlying differences between between people, uh, then you're going to need something like bourgeois right to create this kind of um, equalization, which is always a kind of unequal inequality. He's not for mm. equality. It's really clear when you read this text that he's he's against equality. But if it's necessary you know, in an extreme situation, for instance, when you have to ration, right, you divide things into kind of equal parts, it's that it's, it, it's, it's the least bad option, right? So he's talking about a theory of the least bad option. And this, is, and this is where the state still still persists, is this notion of bourgeois right, this kind of universal right, like everyone gets um, eight hours of social wealth, right? This is a bourgeois concept that ultimately Marx thinks that it doesn't work. Right, because everyone's needs are different, everyone's contributions are different, but it's the least bad option in the situation within very within a very particular uh, instance, and that's you know that's sort of what the state is. The state is 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 something for Marx, at least, it, it's something that provides this kind of abstract uh, equalizing solution to a situation of conflicts of interest, and Marx says, you know, to the extent that they still persist, you'll need something like that. Now the question is, you know, um, how, how much of that can you have? Um, and, and, and how much can it actually overcome those, those kinds of conflicts, or the, those inequalities? Um, and, and, and that's why I point to the whole idea of it being a cooperative society where people already have the means of production in common, Marx is assuming that a lot has already been done. It's not just this world with labor certificates on top. that wouldn't work, right? Things have already been, are already in the process of being transformed so that these kinds of conflicts, you know, you're working more than me, you're getting more than me, et cetera. I, I need something different than you need would be overcome through a real material transformation of, of you know, of, of things, right? And so, you know, the, the, the certificates are sort of a, a stopgap measure, as he says, to deal with these, these birth defects.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Um, I, one thing to follow that up, uh, uh, Jamie had sent us, uh, Jasper sent me the, uh, the blog post that you wrote, the test of communism. And, um, you have this, you have this one, uh, line there where you say, quote, unlike the Proudhonian or left Ricardian labor monetarists, uh, monetarists, these certificates are not meant to fix problems. On the contrary, they express given problems and are seen as inherently injur- um, injurious. And um, I think that's, again, important uh, to kind of highlight because Marx says that this is not the communist horizon, like these certificates, right? Or this this uh, organization of society, this is not the communist horizon, right? This is just um, a trans- transitional phase to higher communism, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question because, uh, you know, I'm, Jamie's um, on the Antifada has done two episodes on communization theory. Um, and I read a little bit um, again on that blog uh, where you posted some uh, posts about it, but I, I still don't really know what it is, but with some uh, kind of uh, Googling, like, light Googling, um, one thing I did see was that um, and tell me if I'm wrong, was that communization is a um, scene as the, uh, transitory phase between socialism and communism, right? Um, Would you say that's correct or incorrect?
1: Well, I I prefer to think of it as a way of understanding the transition out of capitalism as involving the creation of communism from the very first moment. And that's actually what Marx says. There's a revolution and from the beginning, after the revolution, the society is communist. It's a cooperative society and the workers do not exchange their products. And if they did, it wouldn't be the first stage of communism. It would be something else. It would be a lot like what we've seen in a lot of these other revolutions. So that's really important. Um, but communization is 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 a bit different uh, and its in its vision, typically rejects these kinds of labor certificates and things like that. Um, but the idea is that you do not, you know, the, the transition there's still a transitional process. The whole world has to be remade, but it's remade through the creation of directly communist relations, which is, you know, in some ways, even though Marx still believes that there's a transition, he is, he is saying that, right? The society is communist from the beginning. The means of production are, are you know, held in common. Uh, there's no exchange of products. There's some kind of organization by plan. That takes a lot. Um, so in some sense, if we can, can, agree on that, that's a big start because actually most socialists and communists don't agree on that. That's not where they think of things starting because that's actually a pretty, you got to go pretty far to get to Marx's starting point.
2: So is that, is that at odds as a follow-up, is that at odds or what's the relation then with uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat? Um, a phrase Jamie mentioned earlier in which is like still contentious. Like among um you know socialists and communists what's what's the relation with the uh, communization with the dictatorship of proletariat right
1: well okay. i mean i think of it i think of it in this it i th- i think we can think of it um exactly as he speaks of the persistence of bourgeois right mm. in this passage he says that bourgeois right and bourgeois law is is still persist in the society to the extent that it's necessary for there to be this kind of abstract equalization of everyone's consumption and an abstract equalization that makes everyone into a worker, right? Everyone is a worker. You work eight hours, regardless of what you do, you get this amount of wealth, right? Everyone gets the same. And so that's a kind of dictatorship of the proletariat, right? It's a kind of forcing of a certain kind of inequality. And and Marx realizes that it's very, very limited. You need to deduct for people who can't work. Mm -hmm. You need, and and there's going to be people who, who can't, who can't work and so um are gonna have to be given things directly so you're, you're gonna have to deduce you're gonna have to remove some product from uh from from the wage uh different people need different kinds of things uh and communism must recognize this or it would be actually incredibly unequal right and so there's that gonna, gonna have to be all these sort of modifications but i think that's what he means you know is that there's some um, there's some, some force of abstract equalization. Whether we actually need that or not is, a, is, is an open question. But I don't think he means something like, you know, necessarily a violent police force. I think he just means that there's, be, um, there's going to be, there's going to be a kind of subordination to some, some kind of plan or principle. No. Uh, mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I don't think that what, and so and if you want to think of that, that the, the mechanism for that as a state, that's okay, fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may want to call that a state, but it's obviously very different than uh, the kind of state uh, that, that most people imagine and and that Lenin uh, envisions in state and revolution, for example.
0: For sure. We are going to do state and revolution pretty soon, yeah. I think, yeah. on this show. Um, yeah. But uh, what was I going to say? Oh, um, I had a follow-up question on the labor vouchers because, I mean, first of all, I think part of why people like this, somewhat obscure text by Marx is that there aren't that many places where you catch glimpses of the communist society or the transition that Marx envisions. Um, I don't know, maybe we just need to read between the lines to find it. Um, But let's talk about this labor voucher system. Okay. So Marx says, basically, um, in this transitional period, people will get vouchers, they represent uh, the amount of hours they worked and it's the individual number of hours they worked, right? So one person might've made 10 pairs of shoes. One person might've made five pairs of shoes in the same amount of time, but they both get the same, uh, the, the same voucher for the same number of hours. And then they can exchange those vouchers for goods and services. While I guess another sector of the economy will already have decommodified uh, the basic needs of life. Um, so we have these two different parts. And these are sort of further outlined by uh, the German Dutch Council communists that you talk about in your blog post. Um, and I, I actually really like the uh, the plan that they had to sort of gradually shift more and more things into the decommodified realm until eventually there's no need for labor vouchers anymore. Now, In your blog post, um, you lay out a case for why uh, if the political basis exists for this labor voucher program to be working properly in the first place um, with everybody working, you know, as reasonably much as they can uh, and certainly enough for everyone to live a decent life, um, then the system would not be necessary. I could see this working as an argument for it or against it, but... um, yeah, what what are you driving at there?
1: Yeah, I think I'm I I think I'm driving at something that would be an argument mostly against it, but also for it as long as certain conditions are fulfilled. And in that way, I'm trying to kind of make common cause with people who who might find this appealing, um, and try to say, okay, well, let's think about what is you know what 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 would be useful about this. Um, and also, you know, try to, I think, as best I can get marks right and not make what what, you know, his view into, into something that I like in order to um, You know, in order to make a point, but at the same time, did it kind of defend him from some people who sort of misunderstood it so that we can, you know, really get a sense of what the, the proposal is uh, So the The big problem with the labor certificate, right, is this, as you've said. So, you know, everybody who works um, gets paid the same amount, regardless of what they do, um, or really whether they work um, or not. And so, and then, you know, there's some there's some group of people who who can't work, um, and who are supported directly, uh, and and resources need to be you know, taken taken from the wages of the people and, and used for uh, directly provisioning uh, for them and and also um, maybe things need to be set aside for the next cycle of, of generation. Um, but but this means that that that, well, there are a couple of problems here. The first one actually, I think it's better to start with this. First of all, this is where you do need, something like a state that I think is actually problematic, which is to say, you need a, a mechanism of social judgment and social validation that decides who is able to work and who is not. And that's kind of a pretty intense thing to um, force some agency to decide who who is who is able and who isn't. And this is going to have to do with age and gender and ability and it's going to be fundamentally ableist we talk about ableism and concept of disability they would be fundamentally at, at the origin of this and i think um in ways that are going to feel really i think injurious and and ultimately because i don't think that this that doing things this way is necessary gets you any benefit i think we shouldn't do it so then the other thing is that you know you have this labor um obligation everyone has to work if they want to get paid if they can work um, but then labor is also, if it's an obligation, then it's also a guarantee, right? If I force you to work, then that means you always have a job. So I can't fire you, right? And and if you can't fire people, well, then what do you do? Um, how do you reorganize? How do you stop sort of um, productivity from plummeting? Well, you wouldn't. And in fact, I think that in, in, in most cases is often, a lot of workplaces is kind of more helpful to kind of get rid of people who aren't doing anything, right? Unless it's a particular kind of work. Um, and sometimes, you know, places invent whole whole procedures for, for doing that. Um, and so I think that, you know, really the benefits you get from forcing everyone to work would really uh, outweigh the drawbacks. And so you would probably, what would then happen is that you would need to have some implicit kind of output norms, which would then I think uh, violate all all the things that Marx likes about this scheme, right? If you say not only do you not only do you you know um, have to work eight hours, but you also have to produce at a certain rate, well, then it starts to become more like capitalism, right? Then the wage, mm, yeah. then then we start to have a wage that floats, uh, and we start to return to and and we start to have the possibility of conflicts between these different um, productive units emerging, because one of the problems is that um, imagine you know revolution happens and Um, even though people are trying to transform everything uh, people are working with machines and tools of various very different kinds of productivity and workplaces of very different sizes so what one person can do in eight hours is not going to be the same as what another person does and and so that's why you you need to you can't have an output norm right that wouldn't be fair um, because that would mean that people that essentially people in more productive workplaces would be almost like exploiting the others, right? Uh, they would have to work four hours and everybody else would have to work eight, right? Um, so you can't do that, but, um, but you also can't really tell what's machinery and tools and what's effort, right? And so it just it just becomes a mess, I think. Um, and, and the thing is, is, is it, it doesn't get you anything because it doesn't actually get people to work and, and so I think it's more, more trouble than it's worth. So wh- why? why does Marx think you need to do this? Well, he thinks that there, there may, may be shortages of things. Um, I mean, maybe he thinks two things. He doesn't say this, but he might think that people need to be compelled to work. Um, perhaps he thinks that, he doesn't say that. But the other reason would be that there's just not enough stuff. So you have to, you have to create this metering. But if you need to meter it, you don't need to do it through the workplace, you could simply ration, right? Which Marx has already admitted you're basically doing with people who can't work. You're just giving them the resources they need to live. Uh, So I see no reason why you wouldn't just do that and then figure out how to organize work uh, in some other way because the the labor obligation isn't actually doing anything. So then maybe you would in in some, so if you need to, you know, ration something through a certificate or some kind of, you know, issue of points or credit like that. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily be be against that, especially if many things were taken out of that system and just provided directly, um, as I think it would make more sense to do in communism. So, um, so that's my yes and no answer. You know, if it's supposed to force people to work, it's both not gonna work and not very useful. If it's just a way for people to make sure uh, to portion how much they consume, uh, then it's really no more, i say it's like sort of like a chore wheel on, you know, on the refrigerator in, in you know, a cooperative house, right? If it's voluntary um, and it's just a kind of division of, of resources, then, then it's very different.
0: Yeah, I actually like that way of envisioning labor, right? Like a, a lot of the way that, um, that I have tried to explain it to people who are sort of skeptical of our ability to divide up the tasks in a fair way in society i'm like look people in a household do it all the time they're not getting paid but they're like all right someone's got to do the dishes someone's got to take out the trash and you know they rightfully point out that um, it doesn't always work out that way and i'm like well yes also we live in capitalism it's going to require a big paradigm shift uh for this to work on a massive scale but um where was I going with this? I like that idea, <laughs> I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, and I also like the idea of, you know, if things just have to be rationed, maybe we'll say, oh, hey, um, we're not making enough uh, phones for everyone who wants one to have a phone. So either everyone's going to have to work a little harder or we can just have less phones and we <laughs> can decide like what's important to us in in that scenario. Um you know, hopefully in some kind of democratic way. But um, what I was going to say was another purpose I think this transition serves maybe more psychologically for the people talking about it and trying to get themselves and others to believe in it than whatever purpose it might serve in practice. But I do think it's sort of a kind of psychological training wheels, right? People are used to working and getting paychecks and exchanging the paychecks for goods and services, Mm. maybe something that feels like that will feel a little more familiar to people until such a time as we're like, Oh wait, we don't need to do this anymore.
1: Yeah. I think that's, I think that's one of the stronger, I think that's one of the stronger arguments for it. Um, Another strong argument for it is that, you know, a certain, that, most people's idea of the good involves a certain amount of personalization of consumption, right? Not everybody wants the same things. You can't you can't just, you know, pay people directly. And so you have to have some flux. If you want to limit things, if you want to limit resources, um, and for 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 you know consumption that's really unique to the person, you would you would need this. And that's what the that's what the Um, The Dutch GIK say, interestingly, they have this vision where more and more stuff will just be provided uh, gratis, Uh, but but they think that, and will just be kind of given to people at no charge, but they think that people will still need certificates for some small amount of consumption, which is the things that only, you know, only certain people want, Mm -hmm. right? And those kinds of personal items would just always have to be certificated because otherwise you wouldn't, you know, know how to count for them. But I think that's sort of not really the issue, right? Uh, of course, who care? I don't really care about that as much as I care about how we're organizing, you know, food and housing and, you know, healthcare and that yeah. kind of stuff. So.
0: Yeah, if we have less phones, maybe people will just log off and that'll yeah, be fine. Yeah, people log
2: off and actually it. Yeah.
0: And after we save the planet, there will be so much grass to touch.
2: So. <laughs> exactly.
1: And also, you know, I mean, you know, uh, yeah, telecommunications and, and circuits and Silicon are kind of amazing technologies, but you know, also the phone is this like personal item that's very connected to a capitalist way of living. I mean, I could just yeah. imagine us having kind of shared technology that we use in very different ways that, you know, I mean, there's lots of forms of life where I would be happy to not have a phone and probably much happier without one. Like, I, you know, so I think that these, yeah, these, these, and, and that's a point I try to make in my article too, is that, um, the training wheels idea is important, and I and I and I like that, um, and that's why I think you know maybe yeah some 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 you know some some credit like that I I could see it being in use and being fine, but I also think it's important to to note that it will be beneficial uh, and useful to communalize as much consumption as possible mm-hmm. early on, so that people really aren't. Getting it by by paying for it with script mm. or something. That's to say, having canteens that are free access, having dormitories that anybody can sleep in, having, you know, healthcare that's on demand. And I think most visions of socialism would would, would given, I mean, given that it's 150 years after Marx wrote this text and the, the kind of productivity that we have, I think most people agree that we could provide a lot of that um without metering it. And but also that I think. At that point, then there would really be no point in kind of individualizing consumption. Like, what's the point in, you know, metering access to the canteen or uh the 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 the, the communal storehouse? So uh, it's and a I measurement,
0: will, if nothing else, right?
1: Well, yeah, but you could. I mean, you can measure stocks without ho- knowing who took it, right?
0: Yeah,
1: uh but, that is true. But you, but the you know, but the point is, is that I think that it will if if you if you communalize consumption like that, people will be less kind of individualistic and egoistic in their sense of, you know, their relationship to other and one of the problems about, you know, sort of continuing to have this kind of atomistic way of consuming where I have my credit and I, you know, spend it on these things is that uh, people don't really, you know, come to see their life, their lives in common to the same degree, whereas people are consuming and living together in different kinds of ways, then I think that that begins to kind of, you know, transform uh, consciousness in ways that uh, are going to be necessary. But at the same time, you know, I do think diversity and variety is 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 a big part of our idea of the good. So it's sort of, you know, it's there's going to be some process of balancing and it'll probably be different in different places. And there's, you know, I don't really, there's lots of different paths here.
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing I like about (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> about capitalism that I would like to keep under communism is you can get so many different kinds of food.
2: Yeah. <laughs> like yeah.
0: Uh, uh, someone living in New York, like you can't food from almost every country in the world. Yeah. And I imagine under communism, we wouldn't just all be eating the same gray slurry everywhere. You <laughs> exactly. know, we yeah. would still have like Thai food and <laughs> Japanese food and Indian food and Caribbean food and shit. <laughs> Otherwise like, Hmm. What's the point?
1: Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: right. um, No one wants to eat the same gruel every day. And I think probably good food would be like kind of the point of life, right? What else would be the you know, what else would we do with our time other than try to like make and eat good food, you know? So yeah, if we had, if we weren't spending so much time making stupid things we'd probably spend a lot of time like making delicious things.
0: I would hope so. Oh, oh man, I feel like this is a good segue to Aaron's internationalism question. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, that's but- yeah, exactly. We're talking about international food. Uh so to, to to transition, um Jasper, uh part one ends with uh Marx uh critiquing the the program's uh their platform, their point about internationalism, um, where he says that uh, basically there are performative gestures towards internationalism. And he says specifically. Um, it is altogether self-evident that to be able to fight at all, the working class must organize itself at home as a class and that its own country is the immediate arena of its struggle. Um, insofar as its class struggle is national, not in substance, but as the Communist Manifesto says, in form. Um, could you could you talk about what that means in relation to um, the, the the Gotha program and especially given that. Uh, They're empty phrases like the International Brotherhood of Peoples, which they borrowed from the Bourgeois league, uh, league of Peace and Freedom. So, could you talk about what does Marx mean by that? Um, insofar as the class struggle is national, not in substance but in form, I think that he means that that I think that he means that
1: workers are bound to particular kinds of locations and also uh, legally regulated by states that are that have borders, um, and so you can't just kind of ignore. Uh, that fact Uh, that there is a kind of national dimension to to struggle and I and I do think that as he I'm not an expert in in the first and second international but I I do think that Marx's organizational conception of internationalism did think of it as kind of these national blocks of uh, workers Connecting with each other. And I'm not sure that's the right way to think of internationalism. I don't know if that's the only kind of internationalism. But that, you know, that was how he he conceived of it is that, you know, the that the working class in each nation would would organize itself and then conduct, but then be in solidarity with the working classes of other nations. So there'd be a process of kind of national organization that would then link up to this international process because, because working class interests uh, for Marx, were were just necessarily international in mm. some way, and I think that he, in a way, sort of didn't didn't realize how problematic the national organization of the working class would be, and how much that would kind of tend to um, solidify kind of national interests. Mm. Uh, the Lassalians were, of course, much worse, but but I but you know I think you, this is an indication of some of the limits of his thought, uh, some of the limits of his uh thought about nation
2: and state yeah so to ask you a follow-up then i'm just curious then like what what would what what is your i guess like sort of vision or view of what uh, internationalism would look like among the working class
1: well i think it would i think it would have to involve international organization mm. uh but i'm not sure that that organization would then be um Sectional or cellular by nation in some way, um, because because that tends to reinforce national boundaries. Yes. So something that something that doesn't have kind of national identifications at all as a form of internationalism may be you know more powerful or more yeah. successful. Which, but that doesn't mean that I ignore the fact that you know uh, workers in the United States are in a condition that's you know that are in situations that are completely conditioned by the, the nature of the, the US state and the history of the United States. Right. I mean you can't be you can't ignore that that organic fact. But at the same time, um, I do think that that yeah national bodies tend to reinforce national interests. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's gonna be a big topic on the show because I don't know I I lean a little bit left com. In some ways, I think Aaron leans a little bit ML, but we're still Mm. figuring it out. And I think a lot of people have interpreted Marx's idea of proletarian internationalism today to mean that, you know, leftists in the U.S. can't even criticize any uh, actually existing socialist state or government around the world, which I definitely disagree with Mm -hmm. um, at the same time. I think we have a responsibility to keep our own government from meddling with other countries. So um, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's an open question and we're figuring it out. And and what relationship any of that has to do with um, communism, right? Because I can support, certainly support these very cool projects, these various examples of people doing really good things in many cases to improve their quality of life like Cuba is one example that comes to mind um, without necessarily positioning it clearly as a step on the way to communism so I guess we're gonna figure that one out as we go right (laughs) that wasn't really a question (laughs)
2: Uh, should... I
0: mean, I got I got more. Do you got more, Aaron?
2: Um, no, I don't have any more. But I was curious about them. If you um, was about the modern day relevance as well. But if you have more, do it.
0: Oh, man, I'm going to jump all over the place. And that's OK. Because <laughs> it's okay. our show and my brain is broken by ADD and the Internet. <laughs> so, OK. Um, in the test of communism, right? Just to jump back a few, a few, a few topics. Um You know, Marx writes about the free association of men. You write about this test of communism as, you know, you could still abolish the value form. You could abolish the value form and still have various methods of oppression and domination, either abstract ones or more personal ones. Um, What like to what degree do we need to concern ourselves with coercion? Like if somebody doesn't feel like working one day, but maybe they do it out of a sense of obligation to their community, um, does that count as free association? Uh, like, is it, is it enough for people to do things? I guess, oh God, I'm like totally tired and I'm running out of words. You know what I mean? What forms of domination and coercion need we concern ourselves with um, is the word is the threat of thinking of people thinking you're an asshole, does that count as coercion or is that okay?
1: These are good questions. Mm. Um, Thank you. I think they're okay. And I think that they're probably inevitable. Uh, And the kinds of coercion that I'm concerned with are like systematic impersonal forms of coercion. They're supposed to to kind of take care of problems automatically, Mm. right? Um, where, where, you know, people essentially delegate their power to some kind of machine that's gonna, going to, going um, to resolve conflicts through, through, through coercion. And I think that that um, really just doesn't work with human beings. <laughs> uh, and, and I, I think the, uh, the ability to do that is just very limited. And especially when you're, when your project is, is about socialism or communism, uh, it's going to be even more limited. And, um, so, but of course, you know, sense of obligation and commitment and, and shame and conflict, none of that, none of that will go away. And I think that um, people, people's motivations for doing things can be quite complicated and people may, you know, want to do it and do it anyways, but not like it. There's, you know, it's not, uh, I, think, I think sometimes we think about these things in, in kind of unnuanced ways um, I mean, you know, I have, I have kids. And so, you know, there are a lot of things that I do with and for my kids, my feelings may be complicated about them, but I still, you know, I, I have, I have an obligation and a commitment and, and I get a lot of enjoyment out of it doesn't mean I always enjoy it. Um, and I think that a lot of things may be like that. I'm not saying everything uh, will be like that exactly. But, but that that's quite different than a kind of labor certificate is supposed to automatically force people to work and also to work hard mm-hmm. um, that um, capitalism has something like that but you need to understand how capitalism makes that work and it makes that work through a profound amount of violence yeah. right mm-hmm. and so unless you take away the violence and you want that to happen it's just it's not going to
0: yeah i mean i see the labor vouchers maybe as like the stickers that they give kids in kindergarten yeah like, get a
2: gold star or something
0: you learned how to read you get a star and like <laughs> yeah. that would make people happy
2: yeah i
1: i maybe yeah. I, I i yeah You'd i like it no i, I really like that way of thinking about it and one of the things i've tried to emphasize in my writing about about Marx here and elsewhere is that um for Marx, it's really important that the system is transparent to the workers themselves. That that um, that things stand under conscious and planned control, and that these labor certificates aren't fetishistic. That it's kind of it's obvious to the workers. Hey, I gave this amount of work, and that's on average what someone produces in that amount of time. Right. The whole way that things work is kind of an open book, as as Pana-Cook, uh will later call it glossing on marks. And so I think that that's really important, right? The way, even if I don't agree with the particular details, I think that the values of making things transparent and tractable, making them visible for everyone and also bringing it into their control. Uh, that's exactly, you know, what, what we should be doing or or thinking about, but you know, the certificate may not be the mechanism for that, but.
0: I can't wait to get a bunch of gold stars for my work. (laughs) eating yeah. <laughs> vegan food in the commissary. I'd feel so good about myself.
1: Right.
0: I mean I like to compare it to um what we do on our podcast too and what we do like if you're in a Marxist reading group or something. Like is that work or is it fun? I mean it takes work. You have to put effort into it, right. but you're also getting something out of it right so feeling you enjoy of, it. Yeah, like that's that's kind of my hope, my vision for labor after yeah. capitalism
1: yeah and there's a lot of there's a lot of complicated things that marxists probably don't really think about that much like recognition you know which which isn't going to go away standing and clout and these kinds of things and they become motivations in their own right um and you know i think that they're that it's pretty probably pretty hard for us to conceive the kinds of intrinsic motivations that might you know that that might involved in doing things and that's what that's what marx means when he talks about you know labor transforming from becoming a necessity to life's prime want mm. what it means for labor to be life's prime want, is that it means that people want would want to be useful that the worst thing would be to be you know idle and have nothing to do mm. that people want to be part of social reproduction and be engaged in it uh and that there's a, that that the, the kinds of things that there are to do are intrinsically motivating
0: yeah and, That is such a good quote from the Gotha program, probably the most famous quote, the most famous passage from it. And with good reason, because it makes communism sound really good.
1: Yeah. Imagine being, imagine being such a genius that you could just like, you know, (laughs) you're like tired and you have a bunch of skin sores and you're old, but you've taught toss off a six page letter to your, to your, to your comrades who are annoying you. And it's it's still just full of all these brilliant gems that people are discussing on a podcast, 200 years later. (laughs) Yeah. I know.
0: I know kind of blows my mind. (laughs) Well, maybe someday people will be saying the same thing about our emails to each other. (laughs)
1: other. Possible.
0: Just got to work really hard on writing good emails. You never know.
2: Uh, so so, yeah, basically, Jasper, what do you what do you think? How is this text uh, relevant today? I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons why it is. I think one of the, the biggest ones that Jamie and I talked about yesterday was uh, the fact that, uh, you know, you'll have left for liberals and again, self-described socialists who were more uh, obsessed with redistribution rather than the economic mode of production. You know, also coalition building. I think is one thing that this text is um, kind of warns about and we can see that today. So how do you, how is this relevant? In what ways is this text most important um, for people to understand today? Well, there are, there are, there are a lot of um, directions that could go with that, but I think the
1: most important thing I would say is that we do need a, we do need a vision of communism Mm -hmm. as a possibility and I think that we've in, we, we've inherited from Marx's reluctance to say much about how it would work and what it would be—a kind of unwillingness to say anything at all. Uh, and of course, we don't have Marx's certainty that communism is
2: is on its way. Um, how would we? Uh, but even I think less that, so, maybe even less so now, maybe than he did back then. Kind right. of given what we know. <laughs> right, um, but you know if if we're here, then it has to be
1: possible or we should just give up. And so if we're engaged in the communism that's possible, I think that, that, that it is important to demonstrate that it's possible and, and coherent and not so ridiculous. Um, and Marx didn't do that, I think, because it had already been done in his time. He didn't need to convince other people that most people accepted that, even a lot of kind of bourgeois liberals accepted that and they were scared of that fact Uh, but today you know the common sense is entirely different Uh, most people think it's ridiculous and impossible so so i think that that there's a lot of value in pointing out pointing to this text and saying this is kind of how marx thinks it would work that doesn't seem um so bad and look at what would be involved in it so you know i think that that's helpful on the other side marx has arguing against a particular way of doing things um, with money and with reform that he had been arguing against all his life. So he, when he's, you know, arguing against these ideas that workers could be paid um, the kind of the the real proceeds from their labor, or that there could be something like a a just distribution. Um, There he's arguing against these, these ideas, which he thinks come from Proudhon um that there's some way of like reforming money to make it more fair
2: yeah um Mm. and I got one before actually I was literally right before we came on I was literally talking to my friend and we were having that exact conversation where she was like well maybe you could make money not so bad yeah so it's actually kind of funny yeah so
1: yeah so I I think Marx's critique of labor money Mm. and and uh, and Proudhon and kind of French socialism, which is lurking behind this, because he thinks that essentially LaSalle has taken over a lot of that stuff that he's been critiquing for the last 20 years. Um, that's really that's that's really, you know, apropos of discussions about MMT and kind of mm. this 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 these these hopes um that one can central bank one's way to <laughs> socialism as it were. And that's a very LaSallean idea. Mm. And and so I think that's that's the other kind of thing you can do with this is see that, you know, the traces of kind of LaSalleanism mm. are still quite, quite strong today. And this kind okay. of hope for a state path to socialism yeah. is, you know, persists. And Marx, you know, had been trying to, you know, argue against that.
0: Fucking LaSalle. <laughs> I mean, we see it with the cryptocurrency people. We see it with the MMT people. They're like on the right track. There is stuff wrong with money, but it can't be fixed by changing the money around. Andrew Yang doesn't even know, probably, that he was influenced by that guy because he doesn't know shit. (laughs) But um, I want to seize on something you said uh, just now and in your blog post where you say it made sense for Marx to believe that communism was inevitable at the time, given what he saw happening around him but it doesn't really make sense for us to believe that today. It feels like, like you said, conventional wisdom, like even I feel crazy for believing that communism is possible. And yet I do. I don't believe it's inevitable, though. Um, I don't know what you guys think. But uh, yeah, I mean, you already said you believe it's possible. Jasper, do you believe it's inevitable? And I want to get Aaron's opinion on this, too. I feel like I swing back and forth wildly from day to day, but I do tend to always believe that it is at least possible, even if we're probably fucked and there is a rather remote chance of it. I still believe that it's possible. Should I take a poll?
1: (laughs) That's where I'm I'm, I'm at. I'm at possible. I don't know that I can say likely. Yeah. Uh uh certainly not inevitable.
2: Um,
1: I wish I thought that.
0: Yeah, same.
2: Like maybe, maybe this sounds like kind of facile or whatever, but um, you know, like you know, like I understand that like like history like kind of never really ends, you know, <laughs> like despite people what people think, you know. And that uh, you know, it's because it's the self-determination of working people. So like as bad as things get and things aren't even as bad now as like they're going to be, you know? Um, like I have to believe it's possible because as you said Jasper, like what else would you do? You just kind of like lay down and just die, you know? Um, inevitable, like definitely not, <laughs> definitely not. But I mean, uh, I guess like there's just kind of seizing on these like kind of ruptures, these contradictions, you know? And it can go either way, you know? It doesn't necessarily have to go um, in the direction that we want, you know? It can be uh, reactionary, you know? So, I yeah, I I do believe it's possible, but uh, I guess that just depends on the you know the work of organizers and you know also just the changing conditions and what happens. So, kind of kind of reading this text also kind of made me a little depressed, though I'll admit because uh, you know, like we're having the same arguments today that Marx was like 150 years ago. You know, like um, they've just kind of like they have they're not exactly the same. They're just kind of developed at a higher level, which is a Kind of depressing, but also, too, I guess the text serves as a warning as to what not to do, you know, to not let the Lasallians have too much power. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: It's comforting to know that they were going through the same shit, but it's also depressing to know that we're going through the same shit. (laughs) Exactly. A hundred years (laughs) later. (laughs) But we got to keep trying, Um, man. I feel like that's like a really good place to end it. But I'm going to keep going because I think we have 10 (laughs) minutes left. So why not? Um. All right. So we're talking about all this stuff among communists. We're having a real good time. And then, oh, whoops. Now we have to go talk to liberals. And when I talk about these things in liberal spaces, I often get criticized for not having the perfect answer to everybody's questions. Everybody's got them about how we're gonna get to communism. Isn't that gonna be violent and horrible? And how things are even gonna work if we manage to get there. So I'm wondering if Marx got these criticisms too, and if maybe that's part of why he didn't get more detailed about how things are gonna work under communism, or maybe he does, and we just have to know how to read him. I mean, I. I often tell people like, well, it's utopianism to think that you can get that programmatic or or to think that I, Jamie Peck, would be able to say any of this for sure. Cause it's not gonna be up to me. It's yeah, gonna be exactly. up to everybody who's doing it at exactly. the time together. But like, oh, how how do you how do you respond to these kinds of bad faith or even good faith sometimes critiques?
1: I think the best response is mostly to ignore them in a way because, like, because we're obviously not going to encounter some break with capitalism by persuading liberals, right? Liberals are by their very nature, always going to be kind of on, 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 on the side of reaction, So there's really nothing to be gained by trying to kind of, you know, make things as specific, um, as they would they would want it's more about trying to to get at the principles and say these are the principles um these are the limits uh and then people will figure it out and 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 at that moment, that's when you deal with liberals and you say, you know, in the revolution, then you would say, yes, this is how these things are gonna work, right? Then you can have a conversation that's practical, uh, where you can explain to people how things are gonna work, or you can deal with their concerns about violence. But but what's the point now? Mm. Um, you're probably going to just be explaining with people who are actually going to try to kill you. you know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, why would you put energy into that? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, this is where, this is where I am kind of, I think, I think of myself as an Orthodox Marxist in the regard that I really don't think, I don't think it's about ideology or persuasion at all. You know, I think yeah. to, to action and it's obviously not going to be people who, for, for the most part, people who, who benefit from the organization of the society? Who do it? So there's just really no, no point yeah. in much time. Yeah. Well, unless, you know, unless they're your friends and you want to have a conversation about it, and then you just try to have try to keep it lighthearted, I guess.
0: Well, <laughs> to be fair, there are a lot of liberals friend. in the working class. Yeah, no, of course, and of course. right, of course, the working class is going to have to be, the revolutionary subject. Yeah. So, that can't happen if. It's still being held back by liberal bourgeois ideology. Right. But I guess the way that people shift is not necessarily by persuasion, but by experience or a combination of both, I often find.
2: Honestly, I, I yeah, I think it's a combination of both. And, like, uh, you know, this is not an original thought of mine. Um, But uh, um, I've heard that uh, actually from Terrence. Terrence Ray, my co-host on the Trailbillies, he said that Covid was, um, you know, the most most recent revolutionary force, you know, in American life, you know, and and people, the, all the signs that we would see where, out of outside restaurants, that uh, we can't find anybody to work, you know, where McDonald's is paying people, you know, to fill out applications for work. People don't want to go back to work, even, you know. I think that. And also expecting the government to actually do something for them in terms of, like, you know, relief. I think that, like, that kind of, like, this, this moment people are actually kind of, like, looking around and realizing, right, like, not just their own, like, class position, but, like, what the state is actually meant for, which is not some neutral arbiter, right, between the classes, but actually an instrument of the ruling class. So, I mean, like, but also at the same time, it, I think there is, like, persuasion involved at the personal level, at the community level. You know, but that shouldn't, you know, obviously that's not like a, it's not going to be a driving like force on the road to like communism, but I don't know. I I have that same problem, Jamie, with, you know, bad faith or even good faith folks, you know, like people who would, I think like, you know, believe in like uh, a society where everything is owned in common, but it's people get scared with terms like dictatorship of the proletariat or revolution. Right. So again, I think uh, it's important to kind of like dissect that stuff and kind of, uh, you know, Explain these things, like uh, at least, so we can understand them. I guess you know.
0: Okay. Yeah, well, that's why we named our show "Everybody, Everybody loves, loves Communism" yeah, yeah. because I really believe if you leave out the scary words that people have been taught to fear, that communism is very appealing to yeah. the vast majority of humanity because the vast majority of humanity is currently. In chains and yeah. being oppressed and exploited by the capitalist class and ever shrinking, ever uh, enriching itself, uh, little tiny group of people. So that's their goal.
1: Their lives are very violent. So this whole life, but it's going to be a violent. Thing
2: it doesn't always.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like shit's violent already.
2: Exactly. Yeah. But, exactly. You know,
0: to the average person in the U.S you know, who maybe has enough food to eat, they don't necessarily see it.
1: Right. No, I mean, and I, and I think, I don't think we should, I think we should take, you know, people's concerns about violence very seriously at the level mm. of organizing. And I think that, that, you know, of course you have to recognize the people, yeah, most people don't like it. You know, they find it, they find it scary um, for very yeah. obvious reasons. Mm. Um, and at the same time, you know, people who those people are capable. People who have those kinds of feelings can nonetheless produce violence in certain kinds of situations. You know, when mm. when uh, when they feel like they have to. So yeah, I think just being it's you know, it's uh, it's not going to come down to to what people want to do, but mostly what they have to do. So mm. yeah,
2: that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. That is a very good distinction to make. Like the idea that any of this is going to be a choice. It's like kind of cute at the end of the day when you look <laughs> exactly. at climate change and <laughs> exactly. the impending collapse, which perhaps has already
1: started. It's yeah. Just, yeah, exactly. You know, if you think about it, that the violence is already here. It's already like psychic. I mean, you know, I, I already feel like it's driving everyone basically insane. So yeah. it's not it's yeah, yeah it's here. So. But I think also, yeah, trying to be in talking about these practical dimensions changes the conversation about revolution from this conversation about like guns and you know mm. storming the Winter Palace and and I think that you know even if we acknowledge that violence is going to be a part of revolution, it really is these the production of communism of new ways of life that that actually allows you to to win right. That's because mm. it gives you know it creates a situation where people are actually go, their lives are different and they're you know, fighting for something rather than, rather an abstraction or an ideal. Um, so, so I think, you know, I always try to emphasize that, that positive dimension because I think people can feel the can, I mean, they, they identify with these ideas of kind of cooperativism and, 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 and common ownership. And if they don't, then they're probably, you know, not our comrades, mm-hmm. future comrades. And so, yeah. Uh, just focusing on the, 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 the positive a little more and not always emphasizing the negative even. I mean, with certain people who are, who are uh, scared about those kinds of things, that, that's mm. a good approach. Yeah,
0: always got to accentuate the positive. Yeah. I mean, that's what I like about communization but, theory in a way, because it really does emphasize the production of communism over the gulagging of the capitalist pigs. Right. Right? Like finding new (laughs) ways to live and new ways to care for one another. Like, I don't care what happens to Jeff Bezos after he gets expropriated. He he just can't be allowed to keep everything that he has. After that, he could just be a guy. (laughs) That's fine.
1: Right. Yeah, that's the best.
0: But like, it might take a lot to get to the point where we can expropriate him.
1: Right. Well, the thing is, is that Jeff Bezos has no actual supervision over all but the tiniest fraction of his wealth. He doesn't even know where it is. So um, what's he going to do about it? I mean, if we (laughs)
0: abolish the value for him, I guess all that... He's
1: never even seen it.
0: (laughs) A lot of it's purely fictitious. A lot of it's just pixels on a screen, if that. So I guess if we manage to somehow solve the value problem a lot of that wealth and a lot of that power just goes away.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to be naive because, you know, I say, what's he going to do about it? Well, what's he, what he's going to do about it is like use counter-revolutionary violent power. So it's not, it's not as if, you know, that's not significant, but at that moment that these questions, these kinds of questions will, will be a lot less abstract, you know, when someone's when, when, when it's no longer, you know, do we, do we do this to Jeff Bezos, but Jeff Bezos trying to kill you. It's, it's, it becomes quite, Different, and not that that doesn't also produce, you know, its own kinds of dilemmas. But I think I just think that there's a way about talking about these things abstractly that mm. that that um, you know turns it into a series of trolley car problems, and it's just yeah, yeah. impossible yeah. for sure.
0: Mm. Well, you got anything else there? And I think this is yeah. a pretty good place to end. Yeah, it's a
2: pretty good place to end. It.
0: Um. Thank you for being our first official guest. I guess Sean was our unofficial guest on the first episode because it was sort of a crossover up between uh, Antifada and E.L.C.
2: So he doesn't he doesn't get the laurels. Uh, Thank you, Jasper, for being our first official official guest. I'm kidding, Sean.
1: I'm really really honored. (laughs) This is a really cool project. I think this is great. I mean, this is the this is if I had any, you know, if I had any podcasting skills or any energy for this kind of thing it's the kind of thing I would do because I think it's the thing that people should be doing yeah
2: yeah
0: well Well, thank you well you you can help us out behind the scenes if you want to I'll send you my questions at 3 a.m and yes please (laughs) I would would
2: also appreciate that
0: (laughs) is there anything you want to plug before you Hmm. go
1: Hmm. Uh, have you checked out this I'm always talking about it but the, the book the golden horde Oh, it's yeah. a that uh, Nanni Balestrini and Primo Moroni wrote. It's a kind of, um, it's it's like a weird oral history and documentary history of the movement of the 70s in Italy, but it's really a kind of history of Italian radicalism from, from World War II through mm. to 1980. Um, and it's just, inc- if you're interested in Italian autonomism and the struggles of that period, it's really quite incredible. But if you're not, maybe, I don't know, it's, it's really a fascinating document. Um, so, but that may be a little, uh, let me think again about something that would be more like a beginner text. That I think <laughs> that's good too. But that's we're a-
0: down, we're open to suggestions
2: for sure. Yeah, we very much so.
1: Um, I mean, I think we talked about, you know, like Eclipse and Reemergence, Society of the Spectacle. Oh yeah. Um, Wretched of the Earth. I mean, you probably know all the, st- I mean, I think if you're doing one it's kind of like, it's pretty, you know, uh, Black Reconstruction. I mean, yeah. it's kind, you know, it's just like I wouldn't, I wouldn't really want you to do anything but spend time on that stuff, really, yeah. you know, and yeah. get, it, get cool people to come talk about it.
0: Well, in true communist fashion, you turned the plug your personal projects segment into <laughs> a plug, really essential leftist thinkers oh, segment. Yeah. So good job. <laughs> good
2: cool. Job looking out for the people. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank One you so second. much, Jasper. Yeah. Yeah. Right.
0: Thanks again, and I hope that we can hang out in person again yeah, sometime that soon. that would be
1: that would that would be fun. Uh, I don't have any plans to come to New York, but I hope to. So. All right,
0: Brad. I'm in New York. Aaron's in Atlanta, so you're gonna have to do a little tour.